Let's see. That's okay. Come on, come scoot up. Let's scoot up. Let's, we're in this together. Yeah, that's okay. Fill in the gaps. You all, you're comfortable there? You like it there? Okay, good. Let's just be careful. She can still see it. Yeah, I want Stephanie. Leave her pathway directly to Stephanie. So the moonlight can come over here. Good. Great. Everybody cozy? Yeah. So Stephanie, can you see? Okay. <laughs> so um, we've been doing some work, some heavy lifting together. I was talking to our friends this morning about there's this beautiful uh, group of women in Japan. They're still there, but mostly it's an ancient thing. It's not there anymore. They're called the Ama. Anybody know about the Ama? The Ama are these women that um, they uh, they they're divers. And they come down to the seashore, bare-breasted, wearing a loincloth and sometimes flippers. Just women. They swim, they, they wade out into the water, and then they swim out into the sea. And they take it, fill their lungs with air, and they take a deep dive, and they go down, 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 into the dark waters. The dark waters. And then time passes. And then gradually, when you think they're gone, they emerge. And usually they emerge with uh, a pearl. They're pearl divers. I think when we are willing uh, to go into our wounds, we are Sometimes we can return with such a precious gift. Yeah. Um, uh, we might find in that wound something that will help heal it, and we might find in that wound something that will give us resonance with other people's wounds. Um, when we do this, we become wounded healers. When we don't do it, we wound other people. Be, there's a lot of that happening in medicine. I work with a lot of docs and nurses and healthcare professionals, and there's a lot of wounding healers, good people with good hearts, well-meaning, who haven't looked at their own wounds and so act them out in the world and hurt others. So why do we do the work? That we're, why are we doing this work that we've been? doing here? Why do this, right? Why don't we just sit in silence? I think it's important to expose, to bring into the light of day that which hurts 
so that we don't hurt others. You know, true maturation, for me at least in the, in the spiritual path, it requires that we discover, uh, not only discover these rooms and name them, you know, like some labeling, but that, we, that the healing of those wounds comes from coming to know them well, intimately, actually. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we um, wallow and that we indulge. You know, we can get very loyal to our suffering. Yeah? We can get really identified with it and loyal to it sometimes. So it isn't that, but it's also not trying to ignore it. When we're trying to put it behind us, you know, when we're trying to, how can I move on? A lot of times in that action, what, what happens is we don't learn anything about the wound. We don't learn anything about what really hurts. And so it keeps coming around again for our attention. Yeah. So, so to do the work you know, of, of um, uh, that exploration, it isn't self-indulgence. It isn't just about self-consciously you know, mucking around in what's difficult. It's how we save the world. You know, it's curious to me that people are always asking me, when will I get over this grief? When will I get over this doubt? When will I um, finally not be so afraid? We're trying to manage our pain. It's curious to me, we never talk about managing our joy or getting over our joy. (laughs) When are you going to get over that joy? You know? It's just as the human condition, kind of moving through our lives, you know? And so what would it be like if we just said, okay, here you are, you're at my doorstep, what do you get to show me? I'm sorry, it's been 40 years, I haven't been listening, I promise I'll listen now. Sometimes that's my whole meditation practice, I sit down, I say, I'm sorry, I haven't been listening. <laughs> it's been a long time, I promise now I'll just listen, what do you want to show me? You know, in Zen centers, um, every night we chant the Bodhisattva vow. And it, it, there's many permutations of it, different ways it's, it's spoken of, but really it's about radical connection. That's what it's about. You know, creations are numberless. I vow to free them. That's the first line. Creations are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to perceive them. Reality is boundless. I, excuse me, illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. That's the Bodhisattva vow. Creations are numberless. numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. Like, you think they're going to end? I vow to transform them. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. You know what's strange to me? 
It's not that we can expand. You know, we sit here and we say, oh, I had the most expansive state. That's wonderful, but that's not what's marvelous to me or, 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 or strange. That's not what's marvelous to me about our lives. What's marvelous to me about our lives is that we take such an extraordinary being, who we actually are, and shrink it down into such a small story. That's what's amazing to me. Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it. I vow to know myself as that. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Not just talk about it. It's impossible, right? How are you going to do that? It's impossible. It is impossible, and we vow to do it every night. Every night we vow. You know, there's a power in a vow. Life is impossible sometimes. It's impossible. There's no one-size-fits-all practice. You know, that's a mistake I think that we make sometimes. You know, the Buddha sometimes they they when you talk about when you talk when people talk about the four noble truths, or sometimes they even say that the Buddha referenced the practice as medicine. I mean, how could you, you know, I'm sick, what's the right medicine? You know, you couldn't answer that question, right? You've got to find out specifically, precisely, what's right. What's the right medicine for this? And that's our job. That's our work. It's impossible. I have a friend of mine, uh, Janet, uh, I've known her for 20 years. She's been a student and a friend, and she's a reminder to me of the basic goodness of humanity. <laughs> and many years ago, now, she was, um, she was having a backyard barbecue with her husband and their friend Albert and their two kids, uh, her son Jack and Albert's son Daniel. And they're having a backyard barbecue, and they're in the backyard enjoying it and talking. The adults are there, and the kids are in the front yard playing, you know. And Janet gets this intuition she should go check on the kids. But Albert, her friend and her husband, say, Oh, come on, sit down, sit down. They're fine. They're fine. Sit down. And then suddenly they hear this unbelievable crash. Yeah. And Albert's kid, Daniel, uh, Daniel, comes running through the house as Janet's going through the house to the front of the house. She sees Daniel run by and gets to the front of the house and there's Jack, her son, lying in the road. He'd been hit by a hit and run. Everybody gathers up, of course, and they scoop up little Jack. You know, he's, little Jack's three and a half years old. Scoop up little Jack and they put him in the truck and they race to the hospital, you know. And there he is, you know, in the back of the back seat of the truck, and Albert's a doctor, and he's applying, uh, he's doing CPR because Jack's not breathing. But all Janet can see is Jack is Jack's broken leg. That's all she can see. She's and she feels so guilty. Like how could she have let this happen? Let him break his leg like this. That's all she can see. Well, Jack had more than a broken leg, you know. They got to the hospital finally, and he hooked him up to life support. And they went on like this for some hours, and then it became apparent that Jack's brain damage was way too severe, and that he wouldn't survive. And they had to unhook him from life support. 
<laughs> and they picked up Jack and they held him and she rocked him like she did every other night, you know, and when she was singing him lullabies, except there wasn't going to be any waking from this dream. And they drove home and uh, the road, I know the road, I've been that way lots of times with them. It's a curving road that kind of hugs this river, you know, and there was a big moon out last night, you know, there was a big moon out that night, and the moon was shining in the river. And, and uh, <laughs> and Janet was holding her child, and uh, something got her attention. Something rose up on that moonlit night, something from in her, inside her, you know. She understood, she, she, it's kind of guidance, we could say, came in, into her and she said, if I'm going to honor Jack's life, I cannot let this accident destroy me. She didn't know where it came from. They got home. And a day or so later, uh, police called to say that in fact it had been a hit and run. And uh, it had been reported. And Janet was furious, of course, angry as can be, raging, really. And then later that morning, there was a knock on the screen door. She opened her door and went to the screen door. And through the screen door, she could see a man that she didn't recognize. But she knew immediately who he was. Yeah. And he was the man that hit Jack. And... Uh, Janet invited the stranger into her home. They, they sat down together. She said the anguish on this man's face was such that it washed away her rage for that moment. It's not that it didn't come back, but for that moment it did. Longfellow wrote, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And once again, this guidance of, ja of, guidance of Janet talked to her. And the man apologized. He took responsibility for what he'd done. And, um, and he said, it's all my fault. And, and Janet said something. She said, this was, uh, we four adults share responsibility for this, actually. In Janet's mind, it was a moment of distraction uh, on all their parts, really. It led to this disastrous outcome. He was on his way to his daughter's wedding. And uh, he was late, and he was busy, and mind, mind was busy, a moment of mindlessness driving, and he didn't even know he'd hit Jack, actually, until later he saw his car. That's how he knew. Yeah. So Janet said, this is the responsibility of all four of us. You know, we tend to like simple causes. We like to tidy up life's uncertainties. And we want such accents to be brought under human control. We want someone to be held accountable. And we want the outrageous and the impossible to be understood so as to alleviate our sense of helplessness. 
But life doesn't present itself in that way. It's not right and reasonable all the time. The truth is we rarely are able to be able to control such catastrophes or the twists and turns of fate or most especially our own dying. So in her humility, really, Janet understood that the only way her life could be saved from an inexplicable horror. Well, she said, I have to take my share of responsibility in order not to live a life of blame and shame. That was her understanding. It's impossible. And yet, we vow to do it. There was still years of grief work to be done by Janet didn't end there. Her little rural community where she lived, that was helpful. There were hippies and Mormons and Mennonites who lived there. And Some mornings she'd come out her door and there'd be a basket of eggs. Other mornings, some flowers. You know? And she was scared most of the time. She was worried and went around telling all the other mothers about all the bad things that could happen to their kids and they should be careful. That was part of the experience. But she said also that all of this cracked her heart wide open, you know, and, and that she felt more alive than she ever felt in her life. Her marriage didn't survive, but Janet did. You know, in that uh, community now, Janet's a hospice worker. She, she's trained with me for many years now. In that community, when there's a child who has to be taken off life support or there's a child that's nearing death, they call Janet. And Janet comes into the hospital and she bears witness. She doesn't give any advice. She doesn't say, it's going to be okay, don't worry. She just bears witness. And that's her strength. Be present for suffering. It's a bodhisattva. You know, the old Buddhist text, they they say the great and courageous bodhisattvas. That's how it always starts. The great and courageous bodhisattvas. Well, I think these are beings who, like Janet, have the fortitude to stand with suffering that might bring the rest of us to our knees. And it's not that such people have no fear. It's not that Janet had no fear. It's rather that they maintain a courageous presence in the face of fear. They're open to the fear. They're willing to hold it, to learn from it, to, to, to see what it has to teach. The fear serves as a catalyst, not as a, something to be withdrawn from. It's a catalyst for compassion. I think uh, Janet shows me, taught me a lot about courage. Um, that it's not, this is not the domain of bodhisattvas who lived 2,500 years ago or Mother Teresa or 
any of the other remarkable beings who are on the earth who we are very grateful for, but it is also here in each of us. Ordinary people. I know a guy, uh, his name's Julio. He's a nurse's aide. He works in a major metropolitan hospital. And you know what his job is? One of his jobs is after there's been a code in a room, when there's been a big code, they crack open someone's chest, you know, that stuff you see on TV, you know. Well, after that happens and someone dies and doesn't recover, everybody leaves the room. Well, that's common. And his job is to go in and clean up. So Julio walks in the room. Julio has a grade school education. He walks in the room. He surveys everything. He sees the red cart with the drawers out. He sees the paddles that have been put back. He sees the rags that are on the floor that are bloody. He sees the person lying on this gurney in their hospital gown. And Julio walks up to the person on the bed and he leans over and he says, you've died. And I'm going to do my best to wash away all dust and confusion. And then he starts about cleaning up the room and cleaning up this person. And, you know, the nursing supervisor comes in and says, we need the room. And the rest of the nurses and the attendants on the floor, they, they know Julio. And so they protect him. And they say, we got a room over here. You know. Because they know Julio's doing bodhisattva work. You know? We can trust our basic goodness. It's not going to let us down. Shantideva has this text, you know, the way of the bodhisattva, and it, it lays out this method for awakening, for our, the, the practice that we do, about awakening, awakening to Buddhahood. A bodhisattva is someone on the way to Buddhahood. Yeah? And... Um, it lays out this path, and the first is two elements to this path, and the first element is basically the cultivation of wisdom, of clearly seeing everything as it is, really seeing reality as it is. Yeah. And seeing through the ignorance that traps us in some sorrow. But it isn't about uh, transcending the pain of our life or trying to put something behind us. So the second step in that, in that bodhisattva path is compassionate action. It's to... Um, that's how wisdom is attained, through compassionate action. So the bodhisattva places herself in the realm of suffering. Yeah? Uh, and engages in practices like the paramitas that purify and develop and give her the capacity to uh, meet this suffering. Yeah. There's lots of bodhisattvas, but there's great stories. We, we are familiar with Avalokiteshvara, the you know, Kuan Yin who's in the back of the room. Manjushri, who carries a sword. Manjushri is a bodhisattva. He cuts or she cuts through bodhisattvas are neither male nor female. They cut through, she cuts through discriminating, excuse me, cuts through ignorance with discriminating wisdom. That's what the sword's about. There's a wonderful bodhisattva, Jizo, Jizo Bodhisattva. Jizo Bodhisattva is a funny little, 
short little bodhisattva with big robes, with great big sleeves that hang down really low. And uh, he goes into hell realms and collects people out of hell realms and they carry them back and they have to climb in his sleeves. But the only way they can make it is if they all hold on to each other. Yeah. That's all Jesus does. He goes down into hell with big sleeves. And people hold on to each other and he takes them out. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, great, crazy, confused sometimes, master, also bright. He said, those who take up the Bodhisattva vow make one simple com- commitment, and that is to put others before themselves and not holding back from anything. They don't hold back anything for themselves, not even their own awakening. And so all of their actions they make the promise, really, to inside their own hearts to share the joys and sufferings of the world. That's what bodhisattvas do. You know, in, uh, in Zen, there's a, there's a thing called a mountain seat ceremony. Maybe some of you know what it is. A mountain seat ceremony is a symbolic ceremony. And in the Zen, though, they'll make a big stage, really high stage, you know. And uh, the, the incoming abbot to the community climbs the stairs, climbs the mountain symbolically, and he sits on the mountain. And I remember being at one many years ago, and uh, what happens is students come forward to the abbot to test her capacity or his capacity to lead the community with wisdom and compassion. And so they have this kind of dharma combat. You know, they ask really fierce questions, and the abbot has to answer really, you know, succinctly. And at this one uh, uh, student said to the incoming abbot, uh, Tell me, um, what does spiritual practice, what does our Dharma practice have to teach us about caring for others? And the abbot said, what others? Care for yourself. Like that. And the student repeated the question and said, well then, how do I care for myself? And the abbot went, take care of others. (laughs) Get it? So if you join this path of the Bodhisattva, you're signing up for trouble. It's hard. It will make demands on you. It's not an easy path. Trungpa said, it implies working with our other as well as the other other. That's what he called it. Our other as well as the other other. And our other is, the, is our projections. You know, our story, our, our sense of self-centeredness, our longing to make things comfortable and just right and pleasurable for ourselves. And the other other is the phenomenal world. The, it's filled with screaming kids. And he's got one. And, and dirty dishes. And, and, and coming to retreats where you think it was going to be about one thing and it turned out to be about another. <laughs> or wars, or prejudice, or stupid politicians, or confused spiritual practitioners. So taking the Bodhisattva vow is a real commitment, you know. It's a commitment to break the chain reaction of confusion and pain and to work our way into an awakened quality of mind and heart. Where we, and we do that by taking responsibility for ourselves. 
if we don't deal with the confusion, if we don't do something about it ourselves, nothing's going to happen. Others can't do it for us. Trungpa goes on, he says, uh, the Bodhisattva, in the Bodhisattva vow, we acknowledge that we are not going to be instigators of further chaos or misery in the world. But we're going to be liberators. We're going to be bodhisattvas. We're going to be inspired to work on ourselves as well as with other people. And when you take the bodhisattva vow, it takes you out of, it makes everything workable. It means uh, you stop asking the question, how can I get out of this situation? That's basically what the bodhisattva does. Stops asking that question. And he asks instead, or she asks instead, what can I contribute to the situation to make it better? David Loy is a wonderful Buddhist scholar back east, and he quotes the Army Corps of Engineers when talking about bodhisattvas. <laughs> he says, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has a phrase or statement. It says, the difficult we do immediately. The impossible will take a little bit longer. <laughs> That's a bodhisattva vow. And, you know, someone who's volunteered for, the body, for this kind of work, you know, this unachievable task, they're not going to be intimidated by the present crisis. They're not going to be thrown off by the difficulties of our individual lives. You know? They're not going to be, they're not going to lose hope when the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Bodhisattva's, bodhisattva's job is just to do the best they can without knowing the consequences of their actions. Or said another way, be open to outcome, not attached to outcome. You know, one of the things that I think is really important when we start thinking about service in the world or compassionate action, things that we're trying to encourage here, is that Buddhism has something particular to this. You know, I was the co-founder of Zen Hospice Project. And we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We just thought there was a natural match between people who were cultivating what we might call the listening mind or the listening heart in meditation and people who needed to be heard at least once in their lives, people who were dying. In our case, mostly people in the beginning who were living on the streets of San Francisco. But one of the things that we see that David points us to is that Buddhism emphasizes interdependence rather than um, power or dominion over something. You know, we, we look at the causes of suffering as delusion and ignorance rather than evil. Yeah. And that really helps. It changes how we are with people. In a Buddhist tradition, we, we, this implies nonviolence because violence would be self-defeating. And uh, our actions are based on love rather than anger which separates us. You know, in, 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 in the Buddhist tradition, wisdom and compassion are considered the two wings that allow us to give, take flight. I, I used to be an advisor, at the, spiritual advisor at the Esalen Institute. And years ago, there was a program to reintroduce condors to the wild. And they raised these condors in captivity, and they released them right outside of Esalen. So what happened was these condors didn't know how to be in the wilderness. So they just kept flying in circles, you know, flying over naked people in the baths and, you know, <laughs> landing on the roofs of Esalen. 
And they learned that they, had to, they, they couldn't release them. They had to collect them up again and then raise new condors um, by, from mothers who were living in the wild. Yeah. I think we're like that. You know, if, if we have an imbalance between wisdom and compassion, we just keep flying in circles. And so, you know, attempts at, at, at wisdom without any compassion, they get really heady and conceptual and intellectual, not very helpful. And, and efforts at compassion without any wisdom, well, they can get really mushy and sentimental and, and easily deteriorate into pity. So we need both. And the wisdom that, uh, that arises from compassion is the understanding that we're not separate. I, I, have, I was in Hawaii a few months ago. I go there. Some friends of ours have a house there. And so I go and visit, and they're big wave surfers, really big wave surfers, you know, like huge waves. And they love the waves. And they, I sit on the beach with them, and they try and teach me about the waves, and they tell me about how they start out at sea a long ways, and they come along, how they break on the reef, and look at that wave. Look at, I never know what the hell they're talking about, actually. But what I watch is that every wave comes up, and every wave breaks on the shore, and every wave gets sucked back out into the ocean. And we're like that. We're like that. Completely unique, absolutely beautiful, completely individual. Look around this room. But not separate. You know, when you, when you bow, when you put your hands together, and we do that all the time, right? Well, you know what that is? is the coming together of wisdom and compassion into one thing. Two arms. That's it. I, was, I, I got to meet the Dalai Lama some years ago. He was, was very kindly giving me something, giving a number of us an award. And uh, I was meeting the Dalai Lama. And so when you meet the Dalai Lama, you want to bow, right? And you want to bow reverently. So I started to bow, and uh, Dalai Lama is shorter than me. And you know, traditionally, you bow lower than your teacher. So I bowed low. And then the Dalai Lama bowed lower. <laughs> so I bowed still lower. And the Dalai Lama bowed lower. So I bowed really low. And I thought, I hope he doesn't go any lower. My back can't take it. And I peeked up to sort of see if he was going to go lower. And then he just started laughing at me. <laughs> and gave me this big hug, you know? And basically reminded me not to take myself so seriously. Yeah? We're never just sitting for ourselves. It's never just your doubt or your fear or your preference. We're always sitting with and for all beings. And when we know that, it supports us. That's part of what gives us strong back, because we're doing it together. I mean, why is it easier to sit here than it is to sit at home? Isn't it because we're all in it together? This is really important to understand about compassion, this inseparability. Otherwise, we start trying to be compassionate for the, in a wrong way. We imagine that our compassion, models that we have for compassion, then have us being, having to be some superhuman person that can be compassionate and embrace the world. I've got to be something special. Embracing suffering becomes then dependent on some individual strength rather than on something that's naturally arising. 
And this is really important to understand. My friend Norman Fisher wrote a beautiful book called Trainings in Compassion that I'd recommend to you. And, you know, um, in it he says, you know, real altruism isn't self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's arising, it's not arising from some guilt, you know, that we should be good or we should be nice or we should be helpful. It's the profound, it rises from the profound recognition that um, we're not fundamentally different, only apparently different. And then we see that the, the way that we love ourselves is to love others, and loving others is a way that we truly care for ourselves. Dalai Lama sometimes says things in such simple language. I, I really admire his capacity to do that. He said, there's no denying that our happiness is inextricably bound up with the happiness of others. Right? We all would agree with that. Ah, good. And then he says, and there's no denying that if society suffers, we ourselves suffer. Aren't we seeing that? Yeah. And then he says, nor is there any denying that the more our hearts and mind are affected by ill will, the more miserable we become. I love that he said it so straightforwardly. The more our hearts and minds are affected by ill will, the more miserable we become. Grumpy old Yorkshire people. It's true. And then he says something so clean. He says, so therefore we can reject everything. We can reject religion, we can reject ideology, we can reject all received wisdom, but we cannot escape the necessity for love and compassion. Manjushri's sword. When we get this, it's pretty hard to believe that acting in selfish ways or propping up our sense of separate self is ever going to make us happy. And so we're all going to fall into confusion. We're all going to fall into self-cherishing ideas and our resentments and our you know, self-consciousness, all of it. But the mask is off now. You're, if you're here, the mask is off now. There's no going back. I mean, Trunkberg did this one time in a theater. I don't know if you were there, James, but he had it. In Boulder, he, he came in. He was really late. He was a little drunk. And uh, he said, it's too late now. You're here. You can't go back. You know? In other words, once you stepped onto this path, no, you can't go back. This is the new normal. The new normal is the world is suffering and... It's my job to meet it. Creations are numberless. I vow to free them. Impossible. There's, in Buddhism, there's a big list of compassion and, oh God, there's treaties and books written. Unbelievable things. But I, you know, I, I tend to break it down to two simple ways of seeing it. There's, we, could call, we could call universal compassion or absolute compassion, which is big and boundless, and everything and everybody has always been embraced by it, even if you didn't know it. It's always been there. And then there's everyday compassion, 
relative compassion. That's when we do stuff. So when we feed somebody, or we change soiled sheets, or we stand up against injustice. That's everyday compassion. Yeah? Everyday compassion, we get tired in everyday compassion. We want people to start thanking us for all our good works. Uh, me, Mr. Hospice, you know? We, we get this thing, right? So everyday compassion has to be sourced in absolute compassion or in universal compassion. Otherwise, it runs out really quick. But absolute compassion, boundless compassion, it's beautiful, but it needs us. It needs our arms and legs. It needs our tongues. Otherwise, that's how it manifests in the world. We're it. My friend uh, Bernie Glassman was teaching in Germany a few years ago, and he was talking about Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara. That's Kuan Yin in the back of the room. But Avalokiteshvara, you know, maybe you've seen images of her. She has 84,000 arms. And depending on the the depiction, she has either an ear or an eye in each hand. Sometimes she has tools in her hands. So the ear or the eye is to see the pain of the world, or the ear is to hear the cries of the world. That's what she has in her hands. And a thousand arms to respond, 84,000 arms to respond. Yeah. Sometimes that's called a thousand arms. So Bernie was talking about this in Germany, and a man raised his hand and he said, It's a beautiful image, but I have only two arms. What should I do? And, and Bernie very kindly but clearly said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And the man looked, and he said, no, I'm quite sure I have just two arms, right? And then Bernie did the simplest, most beautiful thing. There were about 500 people in the room. So he had everybody raise both their arms. Go ahead, do it. Look around. Look around. thousand arms. We're Avalokiteshwara. You get it? We're Avalokiteshwara. No one else is coming to the rescue. We're it. We're a thousand arms. We can hear the cries of the world. We can see the suffering of the world and we can respond. And that includes our own. Compassion um, has this quality to tune itself to what hurts the most, (laughs) to what matters the most. It doesn't have any shoulds or agendas or judgments. We can't help a person if we're busy trying to change them. I'm going to say that again. You can't help a person if you're busy trying to change them. So compassion has no agendas. But it expresses the gentleness, the strength sometimes, the kindness that's necessary for the heart to open, for the soul to be seen. You know, without this presence of compassion, we can't open to our suffering. So people sit in meditation like, I've been sitting with this pain, but it's not opening. 
When's it going to open? There's no compassion there. It's just impatience. Right? I don't think we help people by taking them away from their suffering. I think we help them by turning them toward their suffering. You know, when compassion's present, when it's really attuned, it can feel like what my friend Ramdas calls a soul-to-soul meeting. Like there were these two guys in the hospice, it's that hospice, Rick and Stephen. They, they, um, Stephen, they both had AIDS. They were both dying of AIDS. And uh, when you went in Rick's room, it felt like you were walking into a sanctuary. It was exquisite. And when you went to Rick, on the other hand, was angry. He had, not only did he have HIV, but he had, had a stroke, and so he was paralyzed down one side, and he couldn't speak. And all our efforts to try and help him, they just kind of bounced off this defensive shield he had around him, you know. We just couldn't help him. So anyway, this day, Stephen was dying. I said, uh, Rick, do you want to go see Stephen? And he said, you know, I said, I don't think he's going to be here tomorrow. And so Rick said, yeah. And he, I, we hobbled down the hall together. And he came in. I s- helped him sit down on Stephen's bed. I sat in the corner. That's my way. I, I don't jump in to help until I see if it's, something's needed. And uh, these two men, they entered into the most beautiful, most profound exchange I'd ever witnessed. It was just stunning. And they didn't say a word. And 10 minutes passed, and 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour passed, not a word. Not a word. And then, then Rick just nodded his head. And Stephen said, yeah, that was beautiful. And Rick got up and went back to his room, and Stephen died that night. So what happened? I think um, Rick was terrified of what he was seeing. He knew that in a few days, a few weeks at the most, he was going to die too. And he looked at Stephen, and he saw his own destiny. But Stephen had done his homework. Stephen had looked at his own pain. He'd looked at his own grief. And he had this kind of quality of permeability to him. Almost, he was almost transparent. So when Rick looked at him, Stephen just met him with compassion. Nothing special, just, I know this. I know what it's like to suffer. And I'm right here with you. So compassion, it arises in our nature like a kind of guidance, like an inner guidance. You know? It's already here. It's already essential to our being. But we don't always listen or we don't always recognize it. But it arises up as a guidance. And if guidance is going to be useful, it has to care absolutely for you. And it has to understand what matters most to you. Otherwise, guidance doesn't help. So I, I was working with a woman, and she, wanted, she was dying of cancer, and she wanted to get married. And she asked me if I would perform the wedding, and I said, yeah, I'd love to. She was about six weeks from death. Now, when someone wants to get married six weeks from death, There's something else going on besides the fact that she just wants to be with her partner. So I said, what you really need is a wedding coordinator. 
And I said, I'm very good at that. I could do that. And so she said, okay. And so every day we would have wedding coordinator meetings. And I would come in, we'd talk about the cake, whether it was going to be chocolate or vanilla, whether she was going to be in her bed or her wheelchair, she couldn't stand anymore. All the details. All the details of the wedding. So compassion has this incredible capacity for an empathetic precision. It zeroes into what matters most. And one day we were talking about cake and all this stuff. She said, I just, she just broke into tears. She said, I just want my mom to be there. And her mom had died six years before. I just want my mom to be there. Get married. I want my mom to be there. I could have said, gee, I'm really sorry. Your mom's not here. I didn't. I said, well, how could we, how could she be here? And she said, well, she used to write these really great poems, and I have them, you know. And she said, would you read one at the wedding? And I said, yeah, I'd be honored. I'd be happy to. You see, at that moment, it wasn't the fact that she was dying, that compassion was needed for it. It wasn't the fact that she had cancer. It was the fact that she was getting married, and her mom wasn't there. And she wanted her mom to be there. And that was the face of her suffering. So compassion attunes. It, it, it becomes intimate with the very exact face of the suffering that's being presented in this moment. General good is good. I mean, it has to maintain an awareness of the whole context, but it has to zero in on what matters most in this moment. And it's true in our own practice, too. It's not just, I want to open, I'm going to give, give myself more method. It's like, what actually hurts now? What happens if I go to that? So compassion shows itself as kindness and gentleness, but also as this kind of empathetic precision. Now, we have an idea that compassion is about making people feel safe. And that's good if you can do it. That's great. But you can't always do it. I work with people who are dying. I work with people who live off the streets, and they don't feel safe. And dying doesn't feel safe to them. So I could tell them it's safe, but that doesn't help. But what, hap- what helps is if I'm really residing in my own compassionate heart, if I'm genuinely here, not you know, trying to be a good guy. I'm genuinely in the compassionate heart. Then they sense that. And then they're willing to go to some place that feels absolutely dangerous to them. Not because it's safe, because they're companioned. Compassion snuggles up to pain. You know? Every part of our being wants to run in the other direction. And compassion brings us back. It's the willingness to be with what's uncomfortable, what, goes, what's, what, what doesn't meet our preference, what's hard, what hurts. Yeah? And it... And, and so we, we often speak about compassion as the relief of suffering, and sometimes it does that, but sometimes what compassion does, it just gives us the capacity to stay with the suffering, to stay in the room when the going gets rough, and not bolt. Yeah. I went with Bernie in the early years to Auschwitz, where we helped lead a retreat in Birkenau, Auschwitz II, they called it. 150 people coming from all over the world, practitioners sitting on the tracks in Birkenau. 
Bernie calls them a plunge. He calls it a plunge into the deepest, darkest part of our humanity. And so there we would sit for a week on the tracks in Birkenau. And I, I went there imagining I would learn a lot about forgiveness. And actually, I just felt a lot of, I learned a lot about rage, actually. And that was helpful. We used to do wisdom circles like you did the other night, every morning, except maybe a group, each of us would have a group, maybe 30 people in a group. And in my group, there were people from all over the world, Jews and Germans. Um, and one woman who had been a child in that camp and came back. You know, there was one, Birkenau with these long horse barns, about really long, like length of this meditation hall. And um, they were racks, just racks. And people would sleep on the racks. And sometimes they would separate the children from the adults, and there was even a children's barracks at one point. And she lived in this children's barracks. And we had access to the camp at night, so I went back into the camp this one night, the night before I was leaving, to sit and do practice all night, to stay in the dark and do practice. So I'm in the, in the dark of this uh, barn, this horse barn, doing compassion practice. And in the other end, uh, in comes this woman. And she sits down on, on one of the racks. And then she starts to wail. I've never heard a sound like that. I didn't know human beings could make sounds like that. So I went and I sat beside her because that's all I could do. You can't, there's no words to touch this pain. You can't make it better. You can't say it's going to be better tomorrow. All you can do is stay present and bear witness and, and stay in the room. Stay in the room. And so we did. My hand on her sometimes, her wailing, writhing. We passed the whole night that way until 6.30 in the morning and the sun came up and we got up and the two of us walked arm in arm back to our hostel where we were staying. I left that morning. I had to leave the retreat a little day early because I had promised to go to Germany before I had agreed to do this with Bernie. And I promised to go to Germany to teach a series of workshops on grief and forgiveness. <laughs> so I'm in this major city in Germany and... We're teaching this workshop, Grief and Forgiveness, for a couple of days. Like this, a lot of people, a couple hundred people in the room. And it's time to go. At the end of the day, I'm saying my goodbyes. And this woman raises her hand in the back of the room. And I said, uh, no, it's time to go home. Don't do it, Frank. You know? But I said, okay. So one more. And she stood up and she said, you know, Frank, I've been listening to you for days. And she said, I want to forgive. I really do. She said, but my heart's like stone. It's like ice. She said, my father was a, a um, prisoner in the camps, and he died in the camps. And I can't forgive. I hadn't even said anything about the camps, because it was still difficult at this point. This was 20 years ago to talk in Germany about the camps. I hadn't said anything, but there it was in the room. And then another hand went up, and I thought, oh, here the stories will come now. And this woman stood up and she said, you know, my heart's also like ice. It's like stone. She said, I can't forgive either. 
My father was an SS officer, and I know he killed people in the camps. And then these women, they were so brave. They stood up, you know, and they, they walked to the front of the room, and they came right across the room, 200 people like this, and they stood in front of the room, and they just held each other. They just held each other. And we all stood in silence, bearing witness. Your suffering is my suffering. Compassion is not the same as empathy. Empathy is I feel with you. Compassion is I do something that helps relieve the suffering. And to do that, I gotta I gotta be able to stay here in my seat. And I gotta be able to feel into your experience. I gotta feel what hurts. But I gotta stay here so that I can use the wisdom that's here to help you. If I get over if I get over there in your seat, then we're just merged and I can't be of much help to you. Yeah. So compassion has this ability to stay grounded, equanimity, strong back, soft front. One of the other aspects of compassion that we don't speak about so much, but it's really important, is that because compassion is present, it allows a deeper truth to be known. Let me explain. Like my friend Michael had multiple sclerosis. He, he lived with it for 25 years. And for 15 of those years, we prepared for his dying. Once a month, we'd meet, and I'd work with him about getting ready for his dying. One night he calls me up, he's been in the, in the, got admitted to the hospital, he was in intensive care for a few days, and he came home and he said, Frank, I'm not going back, that's it. And I said, well, let, why don't I come over and we'll talk about it. And went to his house and he's sitting there, he's in his electric wheelchair, and I said, how come you're not going back? He said, I was scared. I was so scared. All this work we've done, all this looking and meditation and stuff, and I was still scared. Like, what's the point? And I, I looked at him, I said, oh, Michael, that fear is never going to go away. And he looked at me like, a little shocked, and then, and then he said, that's the most comforting thing anybody's ever told me. <laughs> that fear is not going to go away. Right, it's not going to grow up and go away. So we have to find something that can hold that fear, that's bigger than that fear. Like when you're afraid, do you know you're afraid when you're afraid? Do you know you're afraid? I think so. Yeah? Usually you do, right? Yeah. Right. So how do you know you're afraid? Um, I feel my heart beating faster. Okay. You feel your heart beating faster. What else? Anything else? I feel an urge to, I don't know, run away or Bolt. fight yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Right. So one of those instinctual drives comes in, kicks in, right? Or maybe we see our mind planning or, you know, strategizing. You know, that's, so that we, we know something about, because we've watched in our meditation practice, what happens in fear. Now here's the thing. If you know you're afraid, it means some part of you is not afraid. The 
part that knows you're afraid is not afraid. And you can orient to that. Or you can orient just to the fear and to the turmoil. That's what we're doing in our practice. We're making space. We're not trying to get rid of the fear. You don't have to get rid of the fear. You don't have to get rid of the grief. You find that part of you that can relate to it. And then you have a handshake agreement between that fear and your awareness, between that fear and you, and a bigger aspect of something. Something else is bigger than you that also includes you. We could call it that. So if you know you're afraid, there's a part of you that's not afraid. And that can guide you in how to function. There's another piece I want to bring in here, and then I want us to try and play with this a little bit. There's another aspect to the bodhisattva. We usually think of the bodhisattva as compassion, but there's another aspect to that, and that's courage. And it's the willingness to go toward what everybody else is running in the other direction from. Now that courage, you know, we, we can know that courage in a couple of different ways. You know, one way that's common that we normally think of courage is warrior courage. That's the courage I got brought up on. You know, warrior courage. And it's related to bravery and we usually think about it and about how people respond in emergencies or in dangerous situations, you know. We think of soldiers or, you know, um, who demonstrate vigor and, uh, and persistence, training and beliefs. I, a lot of physicians and healthcare workers have this kind of warrior courage, you know. But sometimes people express this courage just by getting up in the morning, you know. It's hard. Healthy warrior courage is motivated by honor, by loyalty, by commitment. And there's also a shadow side to that kind of courage, you know. Where, um, so we need to intelligently apply our understanding. Otherwise, we get caught in the shadow side of warrior courage, which is something more like um, it's aroused by shame or by coercion or the need to control. Uh, Jack, well, I was telling Vinny and Pam this morning, uh, Jack Cornfield and, and, and a few of us, had, we all had dinner one night. And, Jack had just come back from Mendocino where he was participating in a men's retreat that happened up there for many, many years. And uh, he used to be led by Robert Bly and a bunch of people. Now it's Michael Mead and Luis Ruiz and Jack and Vinny's been up there, other people helping. And one of, the, one of the things that happens one night in this retreat is in this kind of big redwood lodge, you have to imagine this old lodge and the redwood trees and candles all around this lodge, right? And maybe 150 men, 200 men in this room. And they make the room, the center of the room open. And somebody can step into the center of the room and talk. Now at this particular retreat, Michael had brought in a bunch of gang kids from East Oakland and Compton and all over the place. And Jack had brought in a bunch of uh, young vets who'd come back from Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq. 
And these, these gang kids adore these tatted up, buffed up veterans. So this 16-year-old kid, gang kid from Compton steps into the center of the circle. And he starts telling a story. He's 16 years old. He starts telling a story about how he's coming home, walking with his homie down, back down the street, and rival gang's car comes rolling through his neighborhood. He's in the wrong street at the wrong time. And the windows come down, the guns come out, and the bullets start flying. And he ducks behind a dumpster, but his buddy doesn't make it. Shooting goes on for a while, riddles his buddy with bullets, and he stays safe. And so what he's talking about in his circle is how guilty he feels that he didn't do something to take care of his buddy. He should have done something. And he starts, he starts to weep, this kid. And then this elder, 22-year-old, 23-year-old kid, vet coming back from Iraq, he steps in a circle and puts an arm around him, like we did with each other yesterday. And he says, uh, you did the right thing. You had to keep, you had to stay safe. But you didn't leave your man alone. You didn't leave your guy alone. And then he starts to tell a story. And he says he's in, on duty in Iraq outside of Baghdad somewhere, and he's meant to be controlling this one little, patrolling this one little area. And suddenly all these Iraqis burst out of a mosque and come walking down the street, you know, and he's yelling at them to, he and his buddies are yelling at them to stop. That's their, their job, stop. And disperse. And so everybody disperses except one old guy. And this one old guy keeps walking toward him. And this young kid is yelling, stop, stop. And he's yelling it in different languages and he's trying to make, it, make his, his uh, demands heard. The man keeps coming. And he doesn't know if this guy's loaded up with bombs. He doesn't know what's going on. And he shoots him dead. He shoots him dead. And the crowd goes wild. Because this old man was deaf. What are we doing to our young men? Nobody knows what to do. Jack doesn't know what to do. He said, I don't know what to do. What do you do with that? And then Michael Mead's there. Michael's this mythologist, you know. He tells stories. It's an amazing guy. And he starts beating his drum. I was like, what's he going to do now? He starts beating his drum and he starts telling the story about this old Irish warrior, you know, with half his face blue and half his face red and how he's the, the great warrior in, in, in this Irish, you know, countryside. And, you know, the marauders come and he rides out with his army to meet the marauders, you know, and he's beating the drum, he's telling the story, you know. And, uh, and this man is so, this warrior is so adept at his work that he, he slaughters the marauders, but also he's so filled with anger and rage that it confuses his mind and he turns on his own village and he starts racing back to his own village. And they know he's coming back and he's going to kill everyone in his own village. And so they go to the elders and they say, what should we do? And the elders in this village are women. And the elders say, do this. Line up all the women on the front of the village, on the road coming into the village, bare-breasted. 
Michael's beating his drum, telling his story. And he said, get some ropes and get a big, big tub of water. So when this man comes back, he stops, you know, sees all these women. And while, while he's a bit confused, they wrap ropes around him and they drag him in and they immerse him in this tub of water. And then everybody sings to him. Until he can remember his soul. Until he can remember who he is again. They just sing to him. Michael beating the drum. And then in this room of 150 men, gang kids, young vets, old guys like me, they all start singing to these two men. They just start singing to them. And they keep singing to them until they can remember their souls. Warrior courage. Yeah. Then there's another kind of courage. It's, it's courage of the heart. Courage of the heart. That's what we. That's what we're, we're evoking here. It's a courage that creates the space for us to recognize and acknowledge and integrate our fear. It opens us to a deep compassion, you know. And it's just as powerful, has just as much passion as this warrior courage. It's the courage that allows us to stay with what's true. You know, in the world today, we have so much difficulty and challenges and I, I say reading the newspaper is compassion practice. And so I, I, one of the things that most upsets me in the world is uh, school shootings. It's just so hard for me to understand. And it just feels so hard to get my arms around. So I read, I, would, I made a practice of reading about all the school shootings. And I read about uh, all the horrible ones, and all of them were horrible, but I read about one, and this one woman, Janice Egan. Janice Egan was a gym teacher, phys ed teacher, in a school in Oregon, southern Oregon. And a kid comes to school with a gun, and he starts shooting wildly. Shoots one kid, shoots another, bullet ricochets off the ground, hits a girl's leg. It's chaos, it's absolute chaos. And Janice Egan goes right up to this kid. She goes right up to this kid. And somehow, not aggressively, not to take him down, but aggressively just comes to this kid with a full heart. And somehow, he gives her his gun. Courage of heart. Now, the real courage of heart that she displayed was not that. That was amazing. The real courage of heart was that she held him. And then she said, I will go with you everywhere. Now, because she knew this kid was going to be arrested and the cops were going to be hard on him. So she said, I will go with you to jail. I will go with you to court. 
So she went into the jail. She went through the booking process with him. She went to every trial that this kid was in over the next two years. Yeah. She showed up there. <coughs> Courage of heart. There's another guy, a biology teacher. Kid comes to school with a shotgun, bullets, and all this nonsense. He's shooting around the school, and he arrives at the biology teacher's door, and the biology teacher's got a whole room full of kids, and he stands at the door. And he doesn't do it in a confrontational way, but he stands there firmly with a strong back and a soft front. And this kid gives him his gun. <laughs> Later, I was reading in the paper like, an interview with the, with the biology teacher's father. And the interviewer said, how'd your son do that? He said, it didn't surprise me. He said, my son knew the boy, and the boy knew my son. He didn't mean that they were from the same neighborhood. They saw something in each other. You see? My son knew the boy, and the boy knew my son. Can we see that in each other? And there's another kind of courage. I just courage the vulnerability, the courage of vulnerability. And it's the doorway to the deepest dimensions of our being, I think. And bodhisattvas express this. You know, mostly we think of vulnerability as our fear to be harmed. And so mostly what we experience about vulnerability is our defenses against it. That's what we call vulnerability, our defense against being harmed. But vulnerability itself is just openness. It's just porousness. It's just permeability. It's what allows, it's this incredible human capacity we have to let the whole world impress itself on our consciousness, on our hearts and souls. That's vulnerability. With vulnerability, we can acknowledge we're scared when we start a new venture. You know, we can share the news of a divorce. We can respond to the yearning to get pregnant again after a miscarriage. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's non-defensiveness. Vulnerability is non-defensiveness. I mentioned earlier that I had a heart attack, and that was humbling. <laughs> I used to think I knew something about dying until I had a heart attack. And I was in the room. I was teaching, a, Angie and I were teaching a retreat to docs and nurses on compassion when I had a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I was in the hospital, and uh, the night before surgery, um, Sharda came to see me, Sharda Rogel, you know, who can't be here because she's sick. She came to see me. And she came in and she just sat down and she was just quiet. Didn't say a word, really. And I said, Sharda, you know, I'm scared. I think I could die. And she said, yeah. And then we're silence for a while, you know. I said, I'm still scared. She said, yeah. And we just pulsed like that. 
And, and when I would look at her, she just looked at me with great love. And I could see in her eyes, she would mirror back to me my own um, the love of my own being. You know, one of the things that happened for me when I was sick was I didn't... Uh, people were very kind. They, they put my name on altars here and everywhere, and, and I really felt myself to be loved. And that was beautiful to get to receive the love of other people. That was just exquisite. People would write to me and my wife would read these things and I couldn't really take it in. You know, it was just gorgeous. But that wasn't what was so amazing. What was amazing was that what that how that love awakened the love of my own being for me. How I began to recognize the love of my own being, that that was never going to let me down. And when I began to really rest into this, there was, or sense this rather, there was a tremendous sense of trust, big trust, like trust that there was something bigger than me at work here. And as that trust arose, there was something else which was rest. Finally rest, deep rest, heart at rest, mind at rest, body at rest, consciousness at rest. Uh, Vulnerability. When I came out of surgery, I was in the intensive care unit and uh, I was intubated. You know, machine was breathing for me. I, I just, you know, when, they, when you have a heart surgery, they cut open your body and they literally, literally take out your heart. I was heartless for a while. And, uh, and it's a long surgery, 12 hours, something like that. I'm in a recovery unit, CCU unit. I've got this tube down my throat and I'm in a kind of anesthesia fog. And I don't... I don't know what's going on. And I got tubes coming in and out of every orifice. Morphine pumping into one, blood clot breakers blowing into another, you know. And into the room, uh, I'm, I'm there with my son, my adult son, and Eugene Cash, my buddy. And uh, into the room comes a respiratory therapist who says, let's pull out that tube and see if you can breathe. <laughs> That's how he announced himself. Because I could feel there was something wrong with my lung. They had nicked my phrenic nerve in surgery. I didn't know what it was that, but so it meant my left lung wasn't inflating. No. And I wrote on a piece of paper, I'm scared. And Eugene was there and he looked at the note and he said, Frank, find your breath. He's a no nonsense guy. So I started to find my breath, but I couldn't find my breath. I couldn't tell what was the machine breathing and what was me breathing. And I said, uh, he said, well, sense your body then. And I tried to sense my body, but there was so much anesthesia on board, I couldn't really sense my body. What do you do? What are you going to meditate on when you can't find your breath? The practice we do about after-death meditation. What are you going to meditate on when there's no breath? So uh, I, at that moment, I thought of Suzuki Roshi. Great, Suzuki Roshi turned the wheel of Dharma in a few years, changed everything. And uh, the night before Suzuki Roshi died, the great Suzuki Roshi, he wanted to take a bath. And his wife, Okasan, said, no, 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 no. But his son agreed, Otohiro, not his meditation son, not his Dharma era, but his non-meditation son. He said, okay, Papa, 
basically picked him up and he carried the great Suzuki Roshi to the bathtub and he began to lower Suzuki Roshi. We are so lucky we have teachers like this. And he lowers Suzuki Roshi into the bathtub and as he lowers Suzuki Roshi into the warm water, Suzuki Roshi gets terrified. He's afraid he's going to drown. And his son, Otohiro, says to him, Father, calm yourself. Find your breath. I'll do it with you. And Otohiro breathed with him, and Suzuki Roshi could stabilize and take a bath, and he died the next day. So in the hospital, I thought, I thought of Suzuki Roshi. In this moment, I don't know why, but your teachers come to you sometimes in these ways. And I thought to myself, if Suzuki Roshi can be scared, I can be scared. That's really what freed me. Be vulnerable to your fear. And then I grabbed Yuji and I pulled him really close. And I put my mouth next to his, I put my ear next to his mouth. And I borrowed his breath for a while to stabilize. I just would follow the rhythm of his breath because I couldn't really follow my own. And following the rhythm of his breath, I could stabilize. And then I could say, okay, now take the tube out. The courage of vulnerability. A bodhisattva is not just a warm and fuzzy character. They are beings of great compassion and courage. And we are those beings. We are Avalokiteshvara. We're it. What should we do? Should we try uh, being honest with each other? Would that be good? Suppose this is the way we practice. With courage and compassion and willingness to be a mess when that was so. And, and we stopped trying to manage all the conditions to get it right. Instead, we found a way of meeting what was here, as is. My daughter and I like to go shopping in used clothing stores, consignment shops. And she goes finds a cool paisley scarf or a leather jacket or something or some cool pair of shoes, and she tries things on in the dressing room, and I walk around looking for other stuff. And we're in this one store, and I love this particular store because I still see the price tag, $9.95, good price. And then it says, as is. You know, it's got a little tear, a button's missing or something, stain, as is. I like those tags. I think we should get those tags for ourselves. <laughs> and each other. I take you as is. I mean, suppose that was our intention when we sat down to meditate. Nothing else. I take you as is. Suppose that was our practice. And suppose whatever came up, like we did with the repeating question the other day, we just said thank you, no matter what it was. And that, wouldn't it feel free then to show us more? More of ourselves, or more of our, who we are to unfold? Not just our troubles, but everything. Okay. You want to try something more experiential? You're sitting here listening to me for all this time. What's, well, before we do that, let me just see what, 
What's happening now? What's on your hearts and minds? What's going on? Yeah. I feel pretty cracked open. Feel pretty cracked open. Good. To yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Good, Jack. Yeah. Gratitude, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always bring my teachers with me. When they're in the room, I'm a little more honest. What else? Yeah. Opening and closing, yeah, well that's, you know, I gotta, I can tell you from experience, Joe, if your heart does not open and close, you have trouble. <laughs> yeah. 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 The other day we were talking about listening from the three centers, and it sounds complex, but basically it's just paying attention to those three centers, and the body center is what will help you in that situation. So you sense the body, then you're not so... You're going you're to stay here in, this, in your experience, not get lost over there in theirs. That's the most important thing, right? You, you also get cues from them, but you, you'd stay in your own experience. So there's a woman by the name of Tanya Singer. She's a neuroscientist, brilliant. And she did some... Um, research on empathy and um, and she understood she, she was working with, she stumbled on this she was working with kids with what's called alexithemia alexithemia is a condition by which you can't feel any of the proprioceptive experiences of your body, your digestion or your heartbeat, you don't feel them with this condition and what she noticed was that the, these kids had no empathy they couldn't have an empathetic response because they couldn't sense their own body so sensing your own body is part of what enables you to be able to feel empathy. But also, it becomes the regulator, if you will, that helps you to see when you're kind of getting lost in somebody else's drama. Right? So the body, the body, the body. That's the that's ticket. Yeah, Janice. Thank you. Um, it's nice. It's nice to know that we're impacting each other, infect, affecting each other that way. Yeah. I, I've been on a ride with you today. This, uh, the meditation this morning is at the top of the list of difficult meditations that I've listened to. Uh, it was a welcome home party for my anger and every story that I tell myself of why I should be angry. I was having a pity party here. And, um, 
my back doesn't feel good, hasn't for years, and there's the whole, you know, the next couple dozen or hundred arrows as to why, you know, that I had to go into construction to impress somebody that mm. didn't like me in the first place. Yeah. And, um, that whole thing. And I got really sick, you know, I mean, alcohol and like it and stuff. So uh, that was what got me through uh, paying for kids. Yeah. So they didn't like me very much. Yeah. That, you know, so uh, I had a real hard time. And the talk, man, was just. You know, and I liked uh, your last words. The uh, as is. I, that's my new mantra. That's yeah, today, let's get those tags. It's as, it's as is, and like buyer beware too. Like this. Is, <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, yeah. And, and, and even in yeah. like, uh, few moments, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be okay. You know, mm -hmm. like um, I, I, I've. Uh, Found my place in service. This, uh, I've opened myself back up to yeah. people and listening and being heard and allow myself to be heard. Um, uh. I fell in love again, and that was really difficult. I was really damaged goods, and um, I saw compassion in a, a close friend, and we had a bond. It's, it's unbelievable. I never thought I could, could be in love, really. really. Amazing, huh? Thank you. Oh, I mean, thank you for what you're saying because, you know, it's like, yeah. We heal. Yeah. We heal. Let's get that. And we don't heal by pushing things away. That doesn't heal us. We heal by inviting it all in. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Right? That's my slogan. And so, it's beautiful what you say. We have the feeling we're getting better, but we're already better. You know, we're already better. And by the way, teachers, I don't know about these guys, but if we're honest with each other, we'd say we teach what we most need to learn. You know, I've had a heart attack, and I've had back surgery. Strong back, soft front. Where do you think I got that from? <laughs> I, keep, I talk about these things because I need to keep hearing them. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I had back surgery, and I've been a teacher for a long time, elementary school. There's a lot of up and down, a lot of stress. And I believe I have a genetic disposition for arthritis, osteoarthritis, all kinds of stuff going on in there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.